Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Howard Burton about a series of science books based on Ideas Roadshow collections entitled Conversations About. And today, we will talk about Conversations about Biology. This Ideas Roadshow collection includes five Ideas Roadshow books that have been developed from filmed, wide-ranging conversations with the following leading researchers. Sleep scientist Matthew Walker, biochemist Nick Lane, neuroscientist Jay Gargas, neuroscientist Alcino Silva, and geneticist Stephen Scherer. This collection includes a detailed preface highlighting the connections between the different books, which offer a uniquely accessible window into frontline research and scholarship, while each individual book also includes a detailed introduction plus questions for discussion. The books examine a wide range of fascinating topics related to biology and related disciplines, such as neuroscience, genetics, biochemistry, sleep science, and more through an engaging dialogue format. Topics that are explored include evolution and the origin of life, how copy number variation brings us a deeper understanding both human variability and disease, findings from autism research, our understanding of sleep's essential role in our daily lives, research work done into the specific molecular mechanisms of neurobiology with the goal of being able to intervene in the case of, for instance, autism or schizophrenia, our genetic, generic, uh, genetic understanding and its implications for the future of medicine, together with the importance of understanding the underlying molecular mechanisms in order to successfully treat a wide range of genetic disorders, and much more. My guest today, Howard Burton, is the founder and host of All Ideas Roadshow Conversations, and was the founding executive director of Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics. He holds a PhD in theoretical physics and an MA in philosophy. Well, Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. It's great to have you. So as we're going through the unprecedented times during the pandemic with hopefully some end in sight, I say very cautiously, (laughs) how has it influenced you and your work? Um, Well, in terms of our work, it's... um, I think like a lot of people, it's forced us to think a little bit differently. It's forced us to say, well, we can't just proceed as business as usual. So uh, so maybe uh, what do we have to do in terms of reassessing things, in terms of planning somewhat differently for the future, in terms of using technology in a different way? Certainly, I've done a lot of filmed conversations and a lot of filming with people, and I've started to do some of that remotely 
and um, and of course, just a period of enforced reflection to be able to say, um, well, we have to do things differently. Uh, let's take a moment to assess things and see um, what's worked, what hasn't worked, how we go forwards, how we haven't gone forward, or, or what we should do, what we shouldn't do, and so forth. And and I think that can actually be quite salutary. So some of that has actually been very beneficial. Um, and and on on the on the intellectual side of things, I think an often unappreciated point is just how remarkable new biology types uh, have been in terms of the rapid, exceptionally rapid development of vaccines. Um, and I'm sure that there are all sorts of stories about what we have learned uh, about everything from the immune system to uh virus uh, replication and genetic variants and so forth and so on. So I think there are a lot of really fascinating stories to to tell about that and to learn about that, unfortunately, much of which hasn't actually passed through to the general public. So that's something that I would like to be doing in the next little while is to try to get a deeper understanding of that. Um, but then, of course, there are the larger sociological pictures about what's happened uh, some of it has been uh, unspeakably terrible uh, and so much pain and so much suffering and so much difficulty. There have been some wonderful stories about people acting um, heroically. I don't know if it was like this in Switzerland, but in many places um, at the very beginning of the pandemic, there was this strong appreciation for the medical community and, and the heroic work that they were doing. And people were standing outside of balconies and banging pots and pans and so forth. Um, and that happened quite a bit in the first month or two of the pandemic. Um, and it's interesting to me because people stopped doing that. And yet the medical community somehow uh, carried on and on and on and on uh, without any respite whatsoever. And um, it's it's unfortunate that that has been unacknowledged, but it's it's really uh you know, it's bordering on the superhuman what these people have been doing for such a prolonged period of time. Yeah, for sure. And the, the best acknowledgement is the change uh, in policy to make sure that these people are reimbursed and they've been treated uh, equally and, uh, you know, with a, for the praise they deserve. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I'm sure that there will, I mean, again, I don't know uh, and I don't pretend to know. I'm, I'm an outsider like everybody else. But uh I mean, the, the, the stress that these people have been under for such a prolonged period of time uh, must be um, must be just horrific. And I'm sure many of them have suffered in all sorts of ways uh, uh, above and beyond or, or below and beyond, I suppose, uh, what so many other people have done. So it's really been a it's really been a. I guess, a, a conjunction of, of ups and downs and lots of fascinating and impressive things that have happened and lots of really terrible and difficult things have happened. And uh, it's it's always hard when you're in it, I think, to sort at, sort things out uh, in the best possible way. Yeah, that's a great point. You need some time to reflect. So you've done uh, a lot of traveling for your work. And has this been impacted? And are you likely to return to the same level? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, I. It has been impacted. It has been impacted uh, tremendously uh, insofar as um, we couldn't travel at all anymore. And we used to travel an awful lot, not only for Ideas Roadshow, but I was starting to do some uh, other filming for other projects. 
And um, that had to be stopped cold uh, to the extent that we went from a situation where we were, tra- where we were traveling exceptionally regularly to one uh, in which uh, I don't leave my, my village anymore. And I haven't for, for the better part of a year. Uh, I rarely even leave my home, quite frankly, uh, just to go for walks with our dog. So, um, so yes, that has been, that has been impacted tremendously. Um, the, the follow-up is, well, what does that mean? And to what extent have things changed so that when things get back to normal, uh, will, there, will there be any lingering changes or any remnants? And my suspicion is quite a lot, certainly for me, but also I think for a lot of other people. People have become very comfortable and very familiar with uh, the sorts of things that we're doing, not only uh, audio, but also uh, uh, with video, doing things remotely. Uh, the technology has improved not only in terms of, um, obviously, the camera technology and so forth associated with computers, and people are used to having extra uh, cameras that they use, but also just the internet connection is an awful lot faster for a lot of people. Mm. Um, and so the, the glitches that had occurred in the past don't occur with anywhere near the same frequency. And I think people are used to the idea of interacting remotely now because they've been forced to do so, and they're quite comfortable with it. So the, so before, it used to be if you were to suggest to somebody, well, let's just have a conversation um, over, I guess, Skype or, or, or what have you, or have a video conversation. I think people would, were quite um, low to do so on average, or you needed somebody with specialized knowledge. Um, nowadays, I think people are, most people are very comfortable with it, and I suspect that that will continue not only in what I'm doing, but a lot of uh, teaching in the educational space. I think a lot of people are coming to the conclusion that they don't need to travel as much as they thought they they did before. They don't need to be sitting right beside somebody in order to um, carry on a meaningful conversation. And this, of course, has good and bad, but it certainly will impact the way I go about doing things in the future. Great. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So I'm a Canadian by origin, and uh, I have an academic background. I have a a PhD in physics and a master's in philosophy. And for a while through uh, an interesting uh, series of events, I found myself uh, building and then running a theoretical physics institute in Canada called Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics in Waterloo, which was a fascinating experience because not only did I have the highly unique opportunity to um, build an institution from scratch, and there were all sorts of fascinating aspects in terms of the research mandate. What sort of research do you do? How do you establish a balance? What sort of institute do you have? Because there are all sorts of different um, uh, forms of scientific institutions. There are ones that are more permanently oriented. There are ones that cater more to conferences and and uh, and visitors and don't only have a skeletal uh, permanent staff. There are ones that are are more uh, concentrated on younger people, on postdocs. There are some that are more interested in, on the teaching side with graduate students and perhaps even undergraduates. There are some that are affiliated directly with a, with an institution. There are some that are independent and so forth and so on. So there were lots of interesting decisions that had to be made about how to go forwards. And it was a, a, an interesting opportunity to try to 
um, get a sense of that and try to think as a new institution, you're always faced with this question of, well, why should we exist? What are we going to be doing or hope to be doing that makes a unique contribution? Unlike most institutions and organizations that have existed for centuries and hopefully will continue to exist, people don't question these things. They're just at university X or institution Y, and they think, well, this will just keep going, natural assumption, and uh, we'll see what we can do during our little time period in it. When you start something from scratch, you're constantly faced with, well, what is this thing supposed to do? What are its goals? How is it different? How does it differ from other established uh, institutions and organizations? So Mm -hmm. that was really a a lot of fun and very interesting in many ways. And there were many things associated with the research mandate, uh, some of which I've just alluded to, but there were also other aspects and primarily for the sake of this conversation, the thing which is most relevant, I think, is the outreach aspect, because we recognized it as a new institution that was celebrating a public-private partnership um, with new monies that were dedicated to basic research and theoretical physics. This was something that was, just because of the circumstances, going to galvanize the attention of people and uh, get, a, get some media attention, because the primary uh, uh, philanthropic donor uh, who was also involved in the, as the chairman of the board of this um, new institute, was somebody who was uh, a preeminent business leader in, in Canada. And this would naturally be an opportunity for eyeballs to be on it. And for people who might not have any interest in the normal course in physics or in science to stand back and say, my goodness, why is this person doing this? What does this mean? Uh, what sorts of activities are going on behind the walls of this institution. So it was a great opportunity to be able to start um, spreading uh, information about uh, not just physics, but about science in general, what the the goals are, what the aims are, uh, what the lifestyle of a working researcher actually is, what they do do, what they don't do, and so forth. And so we embraced that opportunity and structured a whole realm of different outreach activities for the general public, for students, for teachers, and so on. And that was also a great deal of fun and very informative. Uh, And and we were very fortunate to have met with a a significant response, both from the uh, local community and and on on a much larger level on the national and international community through the powers of technology. So that was a great deal of fun. And in its own way, it gave me all sorts of motivations to start uh, a few years later uh, Ideas Roadshow to try to um, make a, a very concrete effort to make research insights from leading researchers across all sorts of different fields accessible and engaging to the general public because my experience was that people are interested in that and they really do want to know then all too often there aren't sufficient opportunities for them to be able to um, to get access to that information. So can you describe a little bit more uh, the Ideas Roadshow project? So as I was saying, it's, it's built upon, at least conceptually, the experiences that I had uh, at Perimeter, uh, both in terms of my awareness of the desire that many, many non-specialists had to try to get an insight into research culture. And by that, I want to make a distinction because there are people who are interested in specific uh, facts, specific aspects of science. They're 
fascinated by particularities of genetics, or they're really interested in early universe cosmology, or, or what have you, and that's wonderful. Um, but there are also, I think, people who are interested or curious about the process of science. These things are, of course, not mutually exclusive, quite the contrary, they, they, they reinforce one another. But I think they're distinct. And I think it's worth uh, making that distinction to recognize that a lot of people are just confused by what scientists do. What do they do all day long? What, what is their life mm. really like? Um, how do they come up with their ideas? What sorts of ideas do they come up with? How do they test them? How do they interact amongst themselves? And a lot of these questions don't really get addressed through uh, the, the formal mechanisms, which are normally books or maybe some occasionally. Uh, now, of course, you have podcasts like what you're doing. Um, and, and sometimes you get some documentaries and that sort of thing. But all too often, there are these lacunae that, that uh, people just don't understand it and and they feel removed and somewhat intimidated by it they don't feel that they have access to it so they think well you know i don't really have a science background i don't know about the way that these things work and so they might feel intimidated to even pick up a book because they feel that they don't have the basic prerequisites in order to penetrate that world and i and that was the most common question that i had when I would interact with people about this institute, and, and that really stuck with me, uh, was an extremely basic question, which is, what do these guys do all day long? You have this building, and, and you, <laughs> you have an interesting architecture, and you have all these people, and uh, that's great, and young people, old people, they're coming from all parts of the world. What are they doing? And, and sometimes when you're in the world of research, you forget that it's really that basic a question that people have. So years later, I thought, well, let's take the, 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 that lesson, that understanding that uh, many people are really perplexed at a fairly fundamental level and curious at the same time about what the lifestyle of research and scholarship is really all about and try to take advantage of technology to go and interact with top level researchers to get them to tell their stories. And my experience is that through a conversational medium, you can get different information than you get through lectures and courses and talks and so forth, which is nothing against those uh, media. I think it's very important, and uh, I'm certainly not opposed to them in any way, shape, or form. But I think they provide different insights, and they're a different way of getting a picture of some things. They don't give you... Uh, that they are they're more polished as a general rule when you hear somebody's talk and i mean it could be a scientific lecture it could be a ted talk it could be could be any form of talk whatsoever it's something which is a coherent polished product that expresses a particular point of view with the beginning and a middle and an end and that's important but that's not going to tell you about the diversions that they have along the way at least uh, it will only be done if that's necessarily in, in keeping with the trajectory of the talk. It won't give you a real understanding of what it's actually like most of the time to do that work, what the fears are, what the excitement is, what the frustrations are, what the critics down the hall might think, what the actual proponents think, where the next steps necessarily are, the time that was wasted pursuing trajectory A when in retrospect they should have been pursuing trajectory B and why. Um, what they're worried about in terms of the, the possibilities for their uh, for their students, what they're excited about, 
um, how their their fundamental ideas have changed. And often these things can be extracted in a conversational format. And so the thinking was, let's go around, let's talk to people in a, from a wide variety of different perspectives. Let's have a long-ranging informal conversation. And then once we have that raw information, and these conversations tend to last on the order of two to two and a half hours, then we will try to find a way to frame and extract that information so that it can be not only accessible and easily digestible by a non-specialist, but also so that it can be done in such a way that it can highlight some of the unique features that I was just talking about that they wouldn't necessarily get through other forms of communication and can serve as a complement to that. So that's what we've done. Uh, and so far we have, uh, we've, we've, we've had over 100 of these and produced over, in fact, 120 books because uh, the first, so every, every one of the conversations is framed in a book format with uh, an introduction, the, the full conversation broken into chapters, questions for discussion at the end of each chapter, so that it can provide the, uh, the optimal experience, again, for a non-specialist. And then in addition, we have 20 collections, and these collections, such as the conversations about biology, consists of five conversations each, and uh, with these conversations grouped together, and then a preface at the beginning to, to show some links between them, some conceptual links to some of the ideas as you go through. So hopefully, it will provide a snapshot into all of these different worlds for all sorts of different people who might not otherwise have the opportunity to engage in that. And from there, of course, they can go into all sorts of more detailed directions. So what are the advantages and also challenges of moving the content that you have in the video and conversational uh, interview form into the print? Well, there are lots of challenges. Uh, Again, a good question. Uh, Many of them are ones that you might not think of, uh, and and many of them are ones that I didn't think of. Perhaps the most obvious one is that people don't speak the way that they write. Mm. So it's a it's a wonderful experience to sit down and have a conversation with somebody, and you you feel like you are connecting, and you feel like you are getting information, and information is passing back and forth, and you certainly have that sense, and hopefully your interlocutor has that sense as well. Um, But then when you look at the transcript, you find that it uh, needs an awful lot of work. And uh, when you listen to yourself and you, you look at it uh, and and, and you're, you're the person that you're having a conversation with, you recognize that a lot of work needs to be done on the print side to make things comprehensible. And that's, Interesting. At least in the beginning, it was very interesting to get a sense of how information is actually uh, flowing back and forth, because you do pick up this information using all sorts of other um, uh, aspects, I guess, of, of human receptivity. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm using the right words, but I mean, you, you, you don't feel that you're not connecting when you're sitting down and having a conversation with somebody. But when you just look at the words, you think, oh, my goodness, there's a lot that has to be done here in order to flesh out these concepts and make it absolutely explicit what we're talking about. So that's interesting, a little bit frustrating uh, when you when you recognize that you actually don't speak in as nearly a coherent way as you thought that you did. Um, so that's, that's one lesson. Um, 
there are there are other lessons as well, and that is that often you need to reflect upon um, the contents of a conversation to be able to fully package it in an informative way and structure it appropriately. So when you take a conversation that you've had, most of us, of course, in our normal lives, we don't do that. We don't have a conversation and then dwell upon that very conversation for, uh, for another three weeks or something like that. That would be a silly way to live. And when you, but when you do that, you, you recognize uh, that there is a certain, when you go over and over and over that content again, there are certain things that stand out that you might not have appreciated at the beginning. There are certain ways that you can frame things that, uh, that are more significant than you had initially recognized. And then, of course, when you've had lots of different conversations with different people, you start recognizing the links that come out across conversations. And that's a really interesting uh, idea. You start thinking, hang on, he said something which is quite similar to what somebody else said. Sometimes you can identify this in real time, uh, but sometimes you can't. And reflecting upon it and working with the material gives you a chance to not only uh, hopefully make it more uh, accessible and richer and, and and a better experience for the reader, but it also makes it more interesting for you because you start reflecting upon these concepts and these ideas that may have been emphasized in all sorts of different conversations or different contexts, and it deepens your understanding as well. So it can be actually extremely rewarding. So your choice uh, of, uh, of media, something like video, it can sometimes uh, seem a bit intimidating with all the editing and, and such. So uh, some early career scientists that might be thinking about uh, switching to science communication can be a little bit hesitant. Do you have any advice on uh, on this uh, uh, aspect? Yes, I do. And uh, my advice is that you should dive in. And I think we're starting the golden age of, uh, of digital media communication in all sorts of different ways. Um, you're absolutely right. It can be intimidating. So we've talked quite a bit about print because Ideas Roadshow has, uh, uh, we've come to appreciate over the years that perhaps the best format for this content is actually in print. But I have done, uh, as you rightly pointed out, a great deal uh, in the video space. In fact, uh, we've produced over 1,000 videos and four separate databases for high schools, for universities, for the general public. Um, and in fact, my experience has convinced me to go off in a different direction uh, in the very uh, short uh, future to be making ideas-based films on a number of different projects. So film and video, as well as audio, as well as print, can all be combined and they all have their affordances. They all have their unique advantages and disadvantages. And we are now living at a time when um, the technology is such that that students, uh, graduate students, undergraduates, uh, maybe postdocs, can really take advantage of this in order to assist with their not only their career development, but also actually their understanding and their knowledge uh, of various different topics. But you're absolutely right. These things can certainly be intimidating at first. I mean, when I started Ideas Roadshow, I had no knowledge. We hired a bunch of people. We hired somebody who was doing video editing. I knew nothing about that. We hired people uh, on the camera uh, to, you know, cameramen or if you want to be pretentious directors of photography or whatever you want to call it. 
um, we hired people on the print side. So I didn't know anything about uh, programs like InDesign. Um, but by far the most intimidating was the video editing side of things. I think people are a little bit less intimidated with that now because there's a larger spectrum of video editing and everybody puts up their YouTube video and so forth. But still to dive into something like uh, Final Cut or Premiere Pro and to really um, work with it, there is still a bit of a bar. Um, and, but I would certainly strongly encourage uh, young people to get over that bar. There are all sorts of uh, courses and, and the software is just fantastic. It's not terribly difficult to learn. Of course, you need to spend a bit of time to be able to do it, but it's by no means incomprehensible. And, and the rewards vastly outweigh the uh, the difficulties involved in getting started. And, I, and so I would strongly recommend that young people who are um, interested in science communication should become very familiar with these uh, wonderful software packages because you can do so many things at such a wonderfully high level, really at a professional level, to create a tremendous number of ideas-based um, uh, resources. And the only limitation is really your own creativity and your own um, effort that you're willing to put in. Yeah, for sure. And especially nowadays, there are so many uh, videos on YouTube, which are free and uh, courses that you can access. Yeah. So as I mentioned, uh, the uh, conversations about biology uh, features five uh, stories. So can you tell us how did you choose to include these particular ones? Well, um, biology is, of course, a fascinating topic because uh, for all sorts of reasons, uh, one particularity with biology that you don't have with uh, perhaps something like, like physics uh, is that individuals could be placed in different areas. So, for example, if you have, uh, so Alcino Silva is uh, somebody who works in uh, he's, he works in molecular uh, cognition. Um, so you can put Alcino in a neuroscience collection if you want, because he is technically a neuroscientist, but of course he is also a biologist. I mean, you can't have, uh, it's hard to imagine a neuroscientist who's not a biologist, let's put it that way. Mm. So there are obvious crossovers that exist there. Matthew Walker is a sleep scientist who is, I think, technically, or at least used to be in the Department of Psychology and uh, calls himself a neuroscientist. Um, so you have to start making some decisions. There are some people who are, uh, I think, more uh, easier to necessarily frame within biology, qua biology, than other areas. Stephen Shearer is a geneticist, as is Jay Gargas, and, 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 and so forth. Nick Lane works uh, really at a, at a first principles uh, energy uh orientation towards really reformulating uh, our, our, our approach to, to the fundamentals of biology. So he's obviously within a, within a biological context, but there are people who you can place in one category or another, and you have to make a decision based upon uh, a sense of, uh, well, a number of different factors. For me, it was really a sense of breadth. Uh, so when I look at Matthew Walker, for example, yes, it's true. You could put, uh, Matthew Walker in psychology, you could put him in neuroscience. So again, he's a sleep scientist and he looks at, at what happens, uh, to us as we sleep and the power of sleep and the, and, and, uh, and what's happening at a, you know, at a deep biological level. 
Um, and most of what's happening, of course, is what's happening within our brains. So it, you could certainly make an argument to put him in neuroscience. But in my view, there are two fundamental reasons why he really belongs in biology. The first is that sleep is a, uh, is a biological process. It's a function that, um, that I think extends beyond the brain. It certainly includes the brain, and that's where a lot of our, our research is naturally focused. But it is a fundamental biological function, as he, as he points out uh, repeatedly. And as such, as is on par with, uh, with the sex drive, on par with food and so forth. And so as such, I think it needs to be placed within a larger context because these points might be somehow overlooked or omitted if you just looked at it from a neuroscientific perspective. Um, and, and similarly, when you're looking at, uh, at, at someone like uh, Alcino Silva, yes, you're looking at mechanisms within the brain and you're, but you, and you're looking at learning and memory and so forth, but you are really doing so, I think, from taking a lot of fundamental insights from molecular biology and then applying them within that neuroscientific context. So, so I look at, at biology and our biology collection and the individuals who are placed there as people who are saying things of very, very valuable import that certainly often applies to uh, more specified domains such as neuroscience, but has larger repercussions that spill over into other areas of biology and bring in fundamental aspects of biological principles. So are there any ways uh, that you approach this uh, balancing between the depth and the breadth, breadth of the material to keep your audience uh attention, but uh, try not to overwhelm them? Yes. Uh, and that's a good point. And sometimes it's easier to do than others. Uh, and of course, it depends on your interlocutor. Uh, occasionally, you will, very occasionally, you will encounter people who are less inclined or motivated to speak at, at, at a general level, and all of the conversations that we have and all of the material that we produce is designed explicitly in such a way as to be accessible to people with no particular background in that topic whatsoever. So sometimes you have to back up during the conversation and, and ask them specific questions. I don't really understand this, or what do you mean by that? And you have to really make an effort uh, during the actual conversation to ensure that the material is accessible. So that's one, one way to do it. But there are other ways of doing it as well. Um, typically what happens is that we start off the conversation talking at a high level about how people got interested in the research, not just that particular aspect of the research, but the field itself. So how did you get interested in biology? What, what were you like when you were a child? Were you interested in these sorts of topics? How did your research tastes develop? Um, and that's done for a variety of reasons. It, it is actually tactically a useful thing to do because it puts people at ease and it enables them to, to talk uh, about themselves in a way that they don't necessarily feel nervous or intimidated about the fact that cameras are rolling and all the rest of that. Um, so there's that. But more significantly, it enables them to start telling a story and it can actually be very interesting for them. It puts them in the context of somebody who isn't a specialist. They imagine themselves as a, as a young person who is initially drawn to these particular ideas. They are naturally, therefore, inclined to express their motivations and the ideas themselves within that context and using that vocabulary. 
And it also provides all sorts of really inspirational and contextual moments for for everybody because it's, uh, I can't tell you the number of times people who I, I spoke to said, you know, I hadn't really thought of it that way. I hadn't really realized that I did this because of that. In our lives, we often don't have the opportunity to really tell our stories from the beginning. It's a, it's a strange idea because you'd think that we would do it all the time, but we don't. How many times, Galena, have you had the opportunity to sit down with somebody and they said, tell me about how you got interested in your research. Tell me what it was like for you uh, as a little girl going all the way up until the research that you're doing right now today. My guess is it probably hasn't happened all that many times where you've sat down in one fell swoop and, and given that overview of, of, of yourself from the age of, of five or six to today. Yes, for sure. It's mostly snapshots uh, rather than the whole story, isn't it? Yeah. And when you when you have the story and when you can piece that together, it gives you opportunities to really move into the content and explore uh, the content from all sorts of different angles. And then there's the opportunity for me as a non-specialist, which is, of course, what I am myself in almost every area. I have some areas of expertise where it's it's ironically, it's actually a little bit difficult for me because I have to force myself to think uh, what are the obvious questions to be asking if I don't know anything about it? But with biology, for example, I don't have that problem. So uh, because I'm not a biologist and I have these very basic, uh, sort of, I guess, common sense questions that I have, like, you know, I don't really know what a gene is anyway. So let's talk about that and and tell me, tell me what that means and tell me, uh, explain it to me in a way that I can understand. And it turns out when you ask that sort of question, you find that the answer is uh, a lot more complicated than you might think, because it turns out that the definition of a gene has changed over time. It turns out that what people mean by a, a, a gene can be actually several different things. It turns out there's a lot of depth there to explore, and it's a wonderful experience to be able to have expert guides that can help explore that issue with you. Yes, for sure. And that's uh, something that I wanted to ask because you're not a biologist. How easy or difficult is it for you to take interviews of uh, uh, researchers on different topics? What sort of preparations of research or research you undertake? Well, it's, uh, as I said, it's, it's actually, perhaps ironically, it's easier with biology than it, physics is the hardest uh, because uh, I know at least some areas of physics. So there are some things I actually know in physics. Uh, and and that and then you have to play this game, especially if you're talking to somebody who knows that you know something, where you sort of pretend that you don't really know or you're forcing them to go back and explain things. You ask a question that, that not only do you know the answer to, but they know that you know the answer to. And so there's this weird sort of dynamic that gets, a, that gets established. Um, but in biology, it's not that way. Uh, so to specifically answer your question, um, I before I speak to someone, I do look at papers. Uh, I do I do read around uh, uh, the the various concepts. I take a higher level view, and that's a skill that you get. It actually uh, all sorts of things like being an academic administrator uh, helps you with that as well. You learn very quickly that. There are only a few areas where you actually have specialized knowledge. So you develop the skills of being able to extract the basics. Okay, what is this person doing? What are the main issues in the field? What do the other people think? Uh, 
uh, how does this person differ from other people in terms of his or her approach? Uh, and and you, you can very quickly get a sense of the basic aspect of the landscape in a way that, uh, that hopefully enables you to not only uh, later communicate it, but go into the discussion so that you can frame that. So a fair amount of work, I would say a couple of hours, maybe on average, uh, uh, I would say four or five, six hours of looking at papers and so forth. Of course, many of these people have written books, uh, in which case you, you have to read the books um, and you ask questions about the books and you, you try to make the conversation serve as a compliment to the book so that you can say, when I was reading this and that part of the book, I didn't understand that. Can you explain this to me? And how does this fit in with that? Or my thinking is that this is related to that. Is that right? Or is that wrong? How does, how does that actually work together? And a point that I didn't really, I, I think perhaps highlight as much as I should have is that almost all researchers are delighted to have that conversation this is a, it's a bit of a myth out there that uh, that scientists can't communicate their ideas or they don't want to communicate their ideas or they're they're intolerant to, and they only want to talk to fellow travelers or this sort of thing that that runs deeply counter to my experiences if you put in the time and the effort and you are obviously motivated to understand the material you're not trying to play some kind of gotcha journalism or you're not trying to make them look bad or anything like that. There's a, there's a level of trust that has been established because it's clear that you are motivated just to understand the material. You're not coming at it with any agenda whatsoever. You're just trying to, to recognize and appreciate what they've done. Um, then uh, the scientists open up uh, remarkably and in fact, the hardest problem is really to get them to stop talking. They're, they're, they're happy to talk as much as they possibly can about the work. They're happy to do it in the most accessible way possible. Um, and they're happy to do it in a, in a way which they'll take the time to explain very carefully all the nuances and ramifications of their particular positions in a way that can be completely understood by non-specialists. Yeah, for sure. And in this collection of uh, five stories, I'm really excited that you included Nick Lane. So he himself is a brilliant communicator yes. of, uh, of uh, science. So can you just describe a little bit of, about uh, his work? Well, he is, I guess, first and foremost, I, sh uh, uh, I should just add to what you said. He is a brilliant communicator and he is somebody who has a different background. And of course, we talk about that insofar as he didn't just jump through the, the standard uh, academic hoops of going from uh, a, uh, you know, an undergraduate degree to, to a graduate degree to a postdoctorate professorship and so forth and so on. He, he, at several times, he took time out of his academic trajectory. And at one point, he was working in science communication, and, and that led him to start writing books. And of course, he is a very well-recognized and justifiably celebrated author. And he very interestingly uh, expresses many of the principles and the ideas behind his uh, science in his books. So his books are not, I would say, the standard forms of popularization. I mean, it's always dangerous to make these sorts of generalizations uh, because different people popularize in different ways and different things. But he certainly is not of the 
let me let me make uh, evolution intelligible to you, or or let me take this extremely established theory. Uh, let me tell you the story about how the Higgs boson was discovered, or something like that. He very much has been consistently advocating and suggesting a certain line of uh, of attack, as it were, a certain way of looking at biology um, that that he feels. Uh, really should be given more attention to and and hasn't and and is what I called uh, a first principles approach to biology. So uh, his focus is is basically on recognizing that there is a fundamental mechanism with all biological life forms that has to do with energy. And specifically, there's a certain mechanism in terms of uh, proteins across membranes and energy transfer that uh, that involves certain elements of uh, certain basic principles, uh, and his uh, his fundamental philosophy is that this is a cornerstone of uh, of biological life forms, and the fact that this is so widespread and is so common is not a coincidence, but in fact uh, has all sorts of deep ramifications into what it means to be a biological life form and consequently how uh, uh, life evolved. Um, and so you see this repeatedly in his books. You, you see it in the beginning with, uh, with books like Oxygen. You see it in uh, uh, the, his, I don't think this is his most recent book, but it was when I talked to him, The Vital Question, um, when he's, he's suggesting that if we look at things from this perspective, from the primacy of this particular mechanism, from these energetic principles, then we reach a different way of looking at the biological world in terms of not only how it's structured, but why it's structured in that particular way. And then logically, how this might have come to, to have been, how, how it might have originated to begin with. Um, and I found this particularly extremely refreshing. Again, I think he writes very well and very clearly, and I would wholeheartedly recommend his books to everyone, and we do in, in our book. And I guess that's one other point that perhaps is worth mentioning as an aside, which is that sometimes, uh, usually not by normal people, but by publishers, they, they uh, I suppose there are normal people who are publishers. I haven't met any, but I'm, I'm sure there are some who are out there. Um, and they, they tend to be, uh, terribly nervous when you say, "Oh yes, well, we're you know we have a book as well with the same uh, author or based upon these same ideas," and they start thinking these thoughts uh, that you're in some kind of a weird zero sum game where, you know, if, if you're going to get our book and you're not going to buy Nick's book, and that's just complete nonsense. The the our, the assumption all along is that these things are very complementary. If you've read some of Nick's books, and I certainly encourage people to do so, um, then the hope and the, the, quite frankly, the expectation is that if you go to the conversation that that uh, we've carefully put together with Nick as part of this collection, or or if you look at the independent uh, ebook, there will be things that will help you get a deeper understanding of what he wrote, because it's not easy to read, um, uh, and you have to do it over and over again. This is, these are sophisticated concepts, despite the fact that he writes particularly clearly. Um, and these are ideas that you have to revisit and rethink and rehash out over and over again. So it's very helpful to have a mechanism by which you can extract more of that uh, information. And on the other side, if you haven't read uh, Nick's books, 
the, uh, the idea is that by being exposed to him through our conversation, you will be motivated and you should be motivated, should you be interested, to read his books as well. So we don't look at this in any way as competition. In fact, I, I think they're completely complementary. But I would certainly enthusiastically recommend anyone to uh, to read uh, what he has done. And of course, he's also done, I'm sure, lots of other uh you know, interviews and video stuff and all the rest of that. So he's somebody that uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for. And I, I, I think uh, he does a great service, not only to biology, but to science communication. Uh, yeah, for sure. And what I can say also about his books, uh, the structure of uh, of his books is really, is really conductive to education. Actually, during my undergrad, uh, one of our courses was based entirely on his book, Life Ascending, the 2009 one, where each lecture was based on each, cha- on, on each chapter. So basically, you can go to the book, you can read one chapter, and you can absorb it in your own way, which uh, doesn't mean that you need to read the whole book in one go, right. if that makes sense. So uh, another question I have is about the topics. So from the perspective of the general audience, what are the topics that people are more interested in? Because, for example, I recently spoke to Philip Ball about his book, The Beauty of Chemistry. And he said really interesting thing that chemistry doesn't actually capture people's attention as much as it should. Uh, but uh, some other topics like biology or neuroscience, are they a little bit more um, easy for people to digest? Yeah, I think there are a lot of stereotypes out there, and these stereotypes are not just perpetuated in the in the general in the general public. They're also perpetuated in academia. Uh, so, let me veer a tiny bit off topic before I try to address your question more specifically. So, when I was an undergraduate, for example, the the common belief in the in the world of physics when you're an undergraduate is that, well, you know, there are all sorts of different physics, but the only thing that really matters, if you're really good and you're, you're really deep and you're, you're the, the, the creme de la creme, then, then what you should be doing is you should be doing the fundamental theoretical, you know, early universe cosmology, uh, that sort of stuff. And, and everything else is just sort of messy, applied, uh, not very interesting uh, material. And that's the, the sort of Kool-Aid that you drink. Uh, it was for me, and, and my understanding is that it basically hasn't changed all that much. Now, you could sort of see why that has come to pass, but, but it's just completely wrong, which is not to say that those subjects aren't interesting. Of course, they are interesting. They're fascinating. And, and it, in terms of something like cosmology, as it happens, there has been a tremendous explosion of interest because there has been so much data, because there has been the development of all these techniques to actually understand the cosmic microwave background and so forth and so on. Um, but the point is there are so many other areas that are really interesting and really fascinating. And that at first, when you're young, uh, and often the stereotype is that, well, you know, these things are just applied. They're not really interesting. They're not fundamental. Um, and so you can, you know, you don't, they're not really worth paying very much attention to in the overall hierarchy of things. And I think to get back to what you were saying, I think chemistry often gets uh, tarred with that brush as it were. And, and there's a certain sexiness that gets perpetrated. Oh, neuroscience is hot. You know, that's interesting. Um, maybe there are some 
tendentious aspects of biology that are interesting. Chemistry is just applied. That's just nonsense. That's just uninteresting whatsoever. You know, material science, crystallography, that's all nonsense. Um, and, and the truth of the matter is that's, that's completely wrong. Um, there, there are so many things that are fascinating that we don't know that are applicable. If you want to understand how a solar cell works, for example, which is kind of important <laughs> these days um, and really interesting because there are aspects of material science, even from a, you know, from a, a more, I would say, philosophical perspective of when did the laws of, of, of quantum mechanics actually break down? How, how much can you scale these things? Um, there's a, there are so many areas of condensed matter physics that, that, that are just inherently uh, fascinating to deal with new mathematical systems. The idea that you have to look at things from the most you know, reductionistic, constituent-oriented, um, grand philosophical principles, and everything else is just messy and applied and uninteresting, that's just completely spurious. That's just completely wrong. And, and I think uh, science could do a better job and should do a better job, not only communicating that idea to the general public, but communicating it within its own disciplines, because there are fascinating uh, questions all over the place. And once you start, I mean, Feynman, of course, had this, this wonderful quote. He had many wonderful quotes. But this, this notion that anything is interesting, really anything, if you dig down into it enough, if you try to understand what the framework is, if you try to understand what the outstanding questions are, if you approach it that way rather than some preset way that somebody's telling you that uh, this is interesting and that's, you know, that's just derivative, um, that's the way to stimulate yourself, and that's the way to actually make progress. Is not to put up these idiotic um, and artificial barriers to to knowledge, and really lead with what. Just start looking at the actual material. What do we know? What don't we know? What's worth pursuing? What's not worth pursuing in terms of our own interests? So let me try to bring it back uh, now that I've said all these generalities to specifically to your question. Uh, I'm going to take a somewhat different approach and say that what I think is most interesting about these conversations, uh, I can't speak for anybody else, but I can speak for myself. What I think is most interesting is when you appreciate um, how very often people have made assumptions which turned out to be false, or when they haven't fully understood the concepts that they were dealing with, or uh, when we have unthinkingly just reiterated the common view without actually questioning it. And you, you see lots of these sorts of examples uh, within uh, the conversations of, uh, about biology that uh, that make up this volume. So we talked a little bit about Nick Lane um, and that he has a different approach to saying, hey, we should really pay attention to these fundamental, what I believe are fundamental energetic characteristics that, that is, is the right way or at least an important way to look at biology to be able to frame things differently. Uh, let me give you a few more examples of people who say, huh, maybe we should look at things this way or that way, or we should go beyond the standard assumptions that we have imbibed. So one of the conversations, I enjoyed all of them, but one, uh, one that I, I enjoyed a, a tremendous amount was with a fellow by the name of Stephen Shearer. So Stephen is a geneticist, and he uh, uh, he's most famous uh, for being a co-discoverer of something known as a copy number variation. So the idea that uh, there are 
genetic mutations can and do occur to a tremendously large degree, much more than had previously been understood amongst the general population that aren't just uh, single nucleotide uh, variations, but are very, very long strings of, of, of genetic material. So, you know, zillions, I don't, I don't know what the number is, millions, I think, of these, these guys, huge strings of these, almost uh, uh, of, a, of an enormous length of strands of, of, of DNA that actually have been copied or deleted. In terms, so that there's a whole different category of mutations. And he describes his uh, development because at the very beginning, before he, he stumbled upon this, he talked about how people were aware of this to a very small degree. That is to say that they were aware of huge, uh, uh, huge copy number variants that were typically associated with uh, known diseases. So there was something, uh, 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 I think it's trisomy, 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 I think, uh, something or other. I, I don't know. I'm not a biologist quite clearly. But anyway, there, there is a particular, uh, uh, my understanding is that, that uh, I think it's one of the chromosomes, I believe it's chromosome seven, but I might be wrong, is copied in entirety and, and is associated with Down syndrome. So things like that, that people were aware of, that for some specific conditions, there were, the, there were these uh, huge um, copy uh, variations. There were these huge differences in people's DNA. Um, and then everybody thought, well, okay, so there's that that we understand. And then there are uh, the normal single nucleotide uh, mutations that happen. And, and he has this very revealing uh, point in the conversation when he shows a, a slide and he says, look, um, I, I, I know that uh, it doesn't make any sense in the biological world as a principle to have a, to have a bunch of stuff over here and a bunch of stuff over there, and nothing in between. That that's not that's not a feature of our biological world. So there should be something there. Um, and then, of course, later on, he discovers that in fact there is a tremendous amount of that. And that has not only that insight not only has given us an understanding of a of specific aspects of of uh, mutation, so that we can obviously lead to a, a more uh, sophisticated level of personalized medicine and so forth and so on. But it has changed the very notion, the very underpinning of what we mean by mutation uh, uh, to begin with. And hence, it has changed really our deep understanding of what genetic material really is and how it works. So it's to me, these things when you you this was not that long ago, right? I mean, we're talking, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago or, or what have you that that, uh, that this insight was developed. Um and it's shocking to think that this happened after the Human Genome Project, um, that people hadn't appreciated um, what we really mean by mutation to the extent that they appreciate it now. And these sorts of insights, this understanding that uh, fundamental aspects of our biological understanding and our biological world have changed, um, that's, you know, that to me, that's that's tremendously inspirational. Let me let me just ramble on for one more minute and give you another uh, different, but I think just as meaningful and just as significant example. Uh, and this was my conversation with Alcino Silva, who was this uh, shockingly uh, a, a wonderful individual. Uh, I, I don't think I've met anybody quite as captivating and quite as remarkable as Alcino. Um, he has done unbelievable pioneering work 
he works uh, specifically with animal models with with mice, but of course, then he talks about then he's involved in clinical trials eventually that can be extended to humans, and he has found through his research that there is a certain uh, set of cognitive deficits that uh, that can actually that that were developmental that were considered to be developmental and completely irreversible but that can actually be reversed. He does wonderful work in learning and memory, and he has shown that there's a certain class of conditions where you can actually treat these cognitive deficits and reverse them. Um, and, and that's just, that has, not only is it just uh, astounding in and of itself, but it flies completely in the face of established opinion that, well, these developmental conditions were, were by definition, by nature, irreversible. And he has been able to show mm-hmm. that that's absolutely not the case, that there are certainly, he, he's not able to obviously make a proof that every single condition is, 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 uh, is irreversible. But all you need is one counterexample. When someone comes along and says, uh, you know, cognitive deficits that 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 have de- uh, that have occurred through uh, you know developmental uh, conditions are irreversible, and you can point to something and say, "Well, no, I can just reverse this one." You've you've established a counterexample that can, at, at the very least, eliminate uh, or, uh, or destroy that that uh, that bald claim. And then from there, of course, as I said, there are clinical trials. Uh, that uh, and there's all sorts of hope for not just that particular uh, condition that he was looking at, which was neurofibromatosis type. I can't remember two, I think. Um, but but in addition, that opens up a, a tremendous amount of uh, hope and opportunity for people to look at at such a wide range of possible conditions that people thought were irreversible, but now recognize, well, maybe they're not actually, maybe we're looking at it in the wrong way. So that's, that's remarkably optimistic and, and really uh, precedent setting in the best possible way. So for me personally, these things demonstrate, first of all, that we're, we're far too rash to come to these sweeping conclusions based upon insufficient evidence. And secondly, that there are so many people who are doing such remarkably inspirational and important and deep and insightful work. And for the most part, we're just simply not listen, listening to them. I mean, uh, I had never met Alcino before I had that conversation with him. You're not likely to hear about this in the New York Times or the, or the, or, or the, the Wall Street Journal, let alone uh, you know somebody's Twitter feed or what have you. Um, but these people are doing fundamental, remarkable work all the time, all around us, and we should be paying more attention to it. Oh, yes, for sure. And such important developments. And as you, as you mentioned, something like uh, Down syndrome, which is uh, uh, predominantly associated with a trisomy of 21st chromosome uh, due to misaggregation. But it's really important uh, development. Okay, so, so I got the chromosome wondering... wrong. It was a 21st. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Yeah, but you but you got uh, trisomy right, so that's uh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, so I threw an N in it. I think because it, it just it doesn't seem like it should be trisomy, but I think it is because I always I always put an extra syllable in there. But uh, but you should not listen to me on biological matters. <laughs> so I was wondering, is there any practical things that you actually took away from the conversations about biology? For example. Did you maybe you rethought your sleeping hygiene or sleeping schedule? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, right. so Matthew Matthew Walker uh, 
Matthew, Matthew Walker changed my life. Uh, let me just put it that way. So I had a conversation with Matthew uh, before his, his book uh, came out, as it happens. Uh, but I'm not sure that that's neither here nor there. But he certainly drilled home to me the importance of, uh, as you say, sleep hygiene, uh, regular uh, sleep patterns. And I went into that conversation uh, exceptionally ignorantly thinking, basically, sleep is a waste of time. And wouldn't it be nice to be able to take a pill so that we could uh, minimize our sleep because I'm, I'm losing all of these uh, productive hours of the day uh, or of at least 24 hours in, in sleep. And I would like to uh, be in a situation where I would sleep a lot less. And I came away from that conversation with a completely different view uh, that I was 100% wrong and that, it, in fact, it was uh, vital for me to give sufficient time and attention to, uh, to having a, a regular solid night sleep and uh and and i have subsequently gone on to do my best to do that and i'm not always successful because one of the difficulties of getting older is that it becomes a little bit harder to have the same uh sleep patterns that you did when you were younger but i certainly pay uh much more attention to it now uh and if it's any consolation, I worry more when I don't uh, get sufficient sleep. And I certainly make much more of an effort to get regular sleep now than I did before. Uh, and it, he, that has certainly changed my whole perspective on the importance of sleep. Excellent. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. And can you tell us what are you currently working on and what is your next venture? So, uh, yes, so two, two things. One is I had mentioned earlier that, uh, or at least I think I had mentioned earlier, that one of the advantages of doing this is that you start realizing which media uh, have strengths and, and which ones have weaknesses. And so uh, this has led to a conclusion that I do want to be working, uh, taking advantage of all this experience and working with film. But I want to do so in a way where it conspicuously highlights the different perspectives that you can get around a specific topic. So I am working on a film now. I've just started in pre-production on a film about the coronavirus pandemic to get a wide variety of perspectives, not only in terms of what we have learned biologically, what we have learned in terms of public policy, uh, how environmental factors uh, are making uh, these sorts of uh, situations more likely, what can be done about it, what lessons we can extract on all sorts of different levels uh, from this uh, from this crisis that we've gone through, and try to answer some of the questions that have been plaguing me over the past uh, year and a half that unfortunately are not being addressed in the way that I would like to see them being addressed. But I know very well that there is a wide number of specialists in the in the biomedical world who would be very happy to talk about them. And so I'm very keen to be doing that, and, and I'm starting to sketch that out right now. So that's something that I hope to finish uh, in a few months to put that together. And simultaneously, I'm also going to keep going with the conversations for Ideas Roadshow, again, holding those remotely now because it's clear that there's no reason why we uh, shouldn't do that, but have them a little bit more focused on specific topics. So rather than conversations about biology or conversations about neuroscience or conversations about history, 
And we've done a lot of that. We have 20 different collections. Now we're going to focus on very specific topics. Again, get five experts around those topics, uh, have uh, extended informal conversations, and produce in book form uh, the same sorts of things, uh, the same sorts of collections that we've done, uh, structured in the same way, and hopefully able to provide a wealth of insight that's targeted around very specific topics. So both of those things are going to continue. Uh, or rather, both, that's the trajectory in terms of those two different directions. And I'm very excited about getting started with those. Yeah, that sounds re- really exciting and important projects. Okay. So where can our listeners find uh, more information about your work and uh, the book series? Well, the best, so we're, we're a bit in transition now because we're setting up other websites and so forth and so on. But the, right now, the best thing to do is to go to this Ideas on Film website that we have. And uh, so that's ideas-on-film.com. And there is, uh, if you're interested in Ideas Roadshow uh, conversations, and I mentioned there are 100 separate conversations, each of which has the same format and is available uh, an ebook. And then there are 20 corresponding collections of five conversations each that are available both in ebook and in paperback. So you can go to uh, Ideas on Film, ideas-on-film.com, and go to the Ideas Roadshow subpage, and you will see a listing of all those conversations. And each one of them, you can click on the corresponding link, and each one of those conversations has its own subpage to give you a little bit more background and structure as to how the book is put together. Uh, who the person is, what the main concepts are, and so forth and so on. Um, So you can get information there uh, about that. And then following these future projects that I'm talking about, you will also see at least some of them on the Ideas on Film uh, website. And then eventually we're going to uh, uh, resuscitate. It's it's a bit complicated and not very interesting, but uh, I mentioned that we have these other databases for high school teachers, for, uh, for universities, for, uh, for public libraries and so forth that are video databases based upon all the video, edited video that we have. That's on our ideasroadshow.com website. Uh, that needs to be transitioned in such a way uh, that we can preserve all of its functionality for these databases and still have all of that print information. So we're in the middle of doing that. So until we do right now, the ideasonfilm.com website is the one to go to for all of these, uh, all of these projects, both past and future. And I would also encourage our listeners uh, to listen uh, to our uh, other conversations about astrophysics and cosmology and conversations about neuroscience interviews that we had with uh, Howard Burton on our uh, uh, NBN New Books Network uh, channels. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it was really a pleasure to be here. And uh, you're you're an untiring and forever curious uh interviewer and podcaster and uh i really appreciate your interest because i think you're doing a wonderful service to the to the entire world quite frankly by communicating uh, scientific information oh thank you very much